Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello, and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. My name is Lisa, I'm your host, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with nutrition coach, fitness model, and host of the Chasing Clarity Podcast, Brandon DeCruz. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Lisa, thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you today about coaching philosophies, your own nutrition strategies and everything else. But before we get into that, I would love for you to just give us a little bit of an intro into who you are and how you got into coaching. Absolutely. So like you said, uh, I'm a nutrition and physique coach. I'm an educator. I'm an internationally published fitness model. And I've spent many years, you know, I spent many years competing as a national level physique competitor. And now I've more, more so transitioned into coaching. So these days, my role is as a nutrition, physique and health coach. And I work with clients of all different backgrounds. So I'm ranging from like high level, you know, executives to even guys at the top tier of like the IFBB. So I work with, you know, fitness pros as well, you know, competitive athletes. And I've been doing online coaching for over 10 years at this point. So I was kind of into it before many have been. So I've went through trials and tribulations and really gotten a lot of experience. But besides being a coach for the past 10 years, I've also, you know, I just left this industry recently, but I spent 14 years working within the sports nutrition industry. So I actually worked for evidence-based supplement brands throughout the U.S., such as Nutribio Labs, and I did a lot within that industry for a long period of time. So really, like my entire career has been fitness-focused, to say the least. And at this point in my life, I do a lot with... I work with, I coach, and I mentor a lot of other fitness coaches and other very fitness-minded, you know, individuals, whether that be competitors, that be other coaches, that be mentees, things of that sort. And I think what really, you know, has set me apart within this industry in terms of what I do is that I've never had like a niche market. So if you ever ask me like, what's my target demographic? What's my client avatar? It's never been one. So I've really, you know, I've always taken on people from different walks of life and different backgrounds, which has allowed me to gain a lot of experience. And it's, you know, allowed me to attain knowledge to work with and help clients of all different backgrounds. So regardless of their goal, you know, if it's losing fat, building muscle, uh, improving their health and quality of life, or improving performance, I've worked with those individuals and helped them get to their goals. So besides like working with clients and mentees, I do a lot towards, you know, continuing education. And so that's why I jump on a bunch of podcasts. I know that you interviewed one of my clients myself, uh, who's Jeremiah Bear, good friend of mine. And so, uh, you know, this past year, I actually, you know, I'd been on hundreds of podcasts over the years and I started my own podcast, as you mentioned, the Chasing Clarity podcast. So I really try to put out a lot of evidence-based information. And really my goal is to bridge the gap between research and information and then practical application. Cause I'm not a researcher. I, I do have an education in this. However, really my emphasis or my focus is on bridging that gap and really applying it in the trenches, having worked with over a thousand clients over the past 10 years. So we often have like this dichotomous relationship between like researchers in the ivory tower. And then we have like coaches in the practice field. And so I'm really trying to bridge the gap. And I've been very fortunate that a lot of my close friends and mentors have been in the research field and then have allowed me or have given me these skills to uh, really break down research and understand that stuff and then apply it to my my own clients. So, you know, in terms of how I got into coaching, you know, I kind of got into this industry in a little bit of different way than most people. At this point, I've been training 17 years, but I initially got into fitness because I had, you know, I was a competitive athlete growing up and I went through a lot of experiences that, 
you know, essentially I was in weight controlled, you know, um, competitive sports. I did martial arts and I did endurance training or endurance running. And so they were very weight restricted. So I ended up suffering from what's now known as relative energy deficiency in sport. At that time, it was way, it way predates that. So we're talking the early 2000s. The International Olympic Committee did not put out a consensus statement on relative energy deficiency in sport until 2014, right before the Olympics. So I was, I way predated that, but essentially how I got into nutrition and fitness was I was an overtrained athlete. Essentially, I was doing way too much under fueling myself, didn't really understand how to pair nutrition and training. And I was training three to four hours a day, but then under fueling myself. And so I was lucky in the fact that I ended up getting, you know, um, I guess recommended and recommended to a physical therapy clinic. And it was run by a bodybuilder that, you know, they were both physical therapists, but one was a bodybuilder and nutritionist and one was a power lifter. So they really taught me about the importance of nutrition and about fueling yourself. And it really like sparked this, this curiosity and this um, interest in me to get into nutrition, get into training, get into supplementation. So, you know, that really started me off early on in high school, really getting into this industry, really learning about things and really going in the direction of continuing my education in that aspect. But I also, I grew up with a father who was a type two diabetic. So I saw, you know, we're going to talk about like how resistant training impacts insulin sensitivity throughout this uh, course of this podcast. And I'm really passionate about that because, you know, I actually, I saw my father had a heart attack in front of me, you know, when I was a kid and it was really impactful to me. And it was, he, he suffered all these metabolic syndrome uh, criteria were these uh, disease complications as a result of what started out as insulin resistance, which progressed to type two diabetes, and it had a lot of health ramifications. So really, that made me more interested in nutrition, training and lifestyle and how that impacts, you know, body composition and health outcomes. And when it comes down to it, I feel like a lot of us coaches, if you really go back to like your backstory, the many of us gravitate towards covering topics and issues that we've dealt with personally, or we've seen our family deal with. And it, it creates these close ties and bonds and interests that kind of push us past what most people would do in their own profession. If we look at, you know, I have friends that are lawyers, um, I have friends that are, you know, in different fields and yes, they do it because they like the job itself, but they're not spending all their time learning about it outside of their actual work hours. But what we do, we're constantly diving into things. I'm constantly studying. And so really, my entire life experiences, what I've went through, what I've seen my own family go through has really um, kind of centered my focus around what I call, consider health-centric coaching, um, where I aim to, you know, like I mentioned, bridge the gap between research and information and then practical application. But I'm trying to also strike a balance between what's optimal for a client's goals and then what's practical within the constraints of their lifestyle. So it's really, in a nutshell, like what I'm looking to do and what I've really, you know, my main focus has been this past 10 years. I love that. Thank you for um, giving us a bit of a background and so many great points. Um, actually, your that little tagline that you just said, bridging the gap between information and application is really what also drew me to your account and just to your to your content, because I love that. And even for someone like me, I mean, I, I, I studied exercise science and nutrition. I have a master's in uh, I'm somewhat able to read research, but even for me, it, the the language, the methodics, everything else behind it, like it's it's made in a way that's a little bit confusing. <laughs> um, and I I started a research and connection group just recently for that purpose with other like-minded individuals to talk about the latest research once a week, but none none nonetheless um the research changes slowly and adapts very slowly. And there it's so nice to have that other part that you mentioned, which is quote unquote anecdata. So, you know, mm -hmm. from experience things. And so I love that you bring those two together as well. Um, because 
just because there is not a study for something doesn't mean it's not true. And um, also just because uh, something isn't proven, but someone believes it's true for them doesn't mean that it's not true for them. We know how placebo works and how po powerful it really, really can be. So yeah, I love that you're combining those two, that you're combining all of your past experience and what you have learned from um, various mentors or coaches as well. And you mentioned uh, two things you mentioned, um, or two people, it was someone who was a bodybuilder and someone who mm -hmm. was a power lifter that you yes. um, kind of in initially started working with. And um, I mean, of course, they, there are a lot of overlaps between the two, but there are also a lot of differences. So I'm mm -hmm. really interested to hear how that has manifested in your training, your client's training. And um, one uh, post that I saw on, on your content as well, or on your uh, Instagram, was specifically going into detail with um, the importance of rest of mm -hmm. taking deloads and that often that is the part that we neglect the most everyone is interested in what's the best rep range what is the best blah 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 but then we don't talk so much about um how should i really manage my deloads i would love for you to talk a little bit about um the philosophy behind that even just from within a training session rest times here for what specific purposes but also in a week, in a month, in a year, how should we approach it all? Absolutely. So there's a lot of, you know, I'll break it down with, by the order that you kind of went in. I was, I think I was very fortunate with my personal experience because I got into training very early on and the one bodybuilder was more bodybuilding and nutrition based, but the power lifter at that time, this is the early two thousands. So what was very popular at that time was something called power bodybuilding. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Power building essentially. And this was like the days early days of like Lane Norton and guys like that. So he was a power lifter that did a lot of strength emphasis, the other owner of this uh, PT clinic. However, he did have like a physique focus. So he would do like his strength work and then do his accessory work more in like bodybuilding rep ranges and more accessory work towards hypertrophy. So I got a really good blend of both between the two of them of the importance of strength training, not only for building your body, because at the time I had essentially broken my body down. I was underfueling myself. I was over-exercising a lot of endurance training, um, it was the exact opposite of what I've tried. I kind of transferred over to these last 20 years. And so really within that, they, they taught me about the importance of multiple things. So the importance of pairing our training with our nutrition, but also the rest component, because at that time I was doing multiple sports. I was, you know, running both cross country and track. I was doing multiple practices per day. I was running in the morning and in the evenings, then going to martial arts after. And so I was training two to three times per day. So rest was not in my agenda 20 years ago. And this is something I've really learned about, but really when it comes down to the topic of rest, um, rest and recovery are two essential components of the training process, but it's something that's really overlooked. And I think it's important to hit on why we even need to focus on rest and recovery. And that's due to the fact that we have to realize that training is a form of stress that challenges our body, both physically and mentally. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of us look at training and we don't think we love training. So we don't see training as a stressor, but the process of lifting weights literally presents our muscle fibers. Like if we think about it from a mechanistic perspective, it's presenting our bodies and our muscle fibers with mechanical stress and metabolic stress. And so these are stressors in and of themselves. And just like any other type of stress we face, it challenges our current state and pushes our bodies to adapt to handle that training. However, just like any other form of stress, our bodies can either adapt in a positive way or negative way. So we could have, we could have positive adaptations or we could have maladaptations. And it really, 
comes down to how you recover. And so this is why rest and recovery are so crucial as we really can only train as hard as we recover and we can only positively adapt to our training and respond to it. And actually, you know, if we think about what are the purposes behind our training for many clients that come to me, it's with body composition goals in mind. So they want to build muscle. They want to increase strength. And we can only respond to that training stimulus if our recovery is dialed in. So we have to look at what training induces training. You know, a lot of times we only think about like training from like the positive adaptation perspective. So we know training increases muscle mass. It increases muscular endurance. It increases strength. But what else does that come with? Because if we look at the fitness fatigue model, it comes with two different adaptations. So with training, it induces both fitness and fatigue. And so training itself induces both acute and, you know, chronic or what we would really refer to in this industry as like accumulated fatigue. And so with acute fatigue, that's what happens within the session itself. So that's a decrease in performance during a workout or immediately after. So this is why, like, if you think about it, if you take your first set of an exercise to complete failure, you're not going to like, we're going to see a general, generally a drop off in repetitions after there. So the subsequent sets, you're going to see a drop off in work capacity and performance. And, you know, it's because of that acute fatigue that we've accumulated right within that, that short, you know, period of time. And that acute fatigue also follows us after the session, which is why, you know, if anyone has tried this, which I don't recommend, but if you were to do a training session and you went, you know, fairly hard within the session itself, it's not like you can come back to the gym that same day or a few hours later and repeat that same training performance and hit those same performances. So we have acute fatigue that we have to manage through rest and recovery, but then we also have chronic fatigue or accumulated fatigue. And this is a fatigue that accumulates throughout the course of our training in like in, during our training weeks. And then also in addition to the outside factors, and that's what adds to like our allostatic load, or, you know, I like to kind of like relate this to my clients is this is our total stress bucket. And we don't have all these different buckets. It's not like we have a training bucket, a nutrition intervention bucket, an emotional bucket, a relationship bucket, like everything gets piled up into one. So it's easy to overflow. So we have to re realize that our training, our nutrition, our mental and emotional stress, our work-related stress, and any other stressors, even like sleep quality or lack thereof, they all you know accumulate into this bucket. So as we're training, our fitness is increasing. We're seeing improvements in work capacity. We're seeing improvements in strength performance, but also we're seeing fatigue increase. And that's going to often, what we see is fatigue will often match fitness, which is why, you know, it's so important to dissipate fatigue and, you know, really dial in that rest and recovery to be able to get our performances back up and really be able to express those fitness characteristics and those improvements that we've made. So if we look at, you know, rest from a high level perspective and we go into different forms of rest, we can look at within session rest, which would be like you alluded to rest intervals. Then we can look at rest days within the training week. Then we can look at deloads. So rest, rest periods within the mesocycle. So when it comes down to like rest intervals, that'll be like our first like bottom level run. Like what type of rest are we taking in between our actual training session? So when it comes to rest periods or rest intervals, I find that many people don't rest long enough in between sets as many, like if we see, like look at a lot of people in the gym, they're like rushing from machine, machine, set to set. And I find, you know, even when I have new clients come on board and I do a consultation with them and I'm speaking with them about this, I ask them why I'm, I'm very inquisitive. And I like to ask people why, because I want to know the intention behind why they do things. And often they want to feel fatigued. They want to feel that feeling of exhaustion because they relate that to a good workout or they relate that to inducing hypertrophy. But we have to realize we have to separate the two. 
And if we actually look at the research behind rest intervals and hypertrophy, we see that the longer rest intervals are more effective for muscle growth. So for instance, if we look at some of the best like data that we have on this, you know, Brad Schoenfeld has done research on this topic and he's actually, you know, comparatively done randomized controls trials where he's looked at one minute rest intervals, you know, within one group versus three minute rest intervals with another. And they found that the group using three minute rest intervals between sets gained both more muscle and more strength within eight week training intervention study. So we see that a longer rest is going to help you maintain better training performance set to set. It's going to help you have better work capacity and, and essentially more uh, volume load. So that sets times reps times load throughout the course of a training cycle. Because think about it like this. If you are to only use one minute rest intervals, which many people do, you may get be able to go to failure on your first set and you may get 12 reps, but we're going to see that your ability to do reps drop off significantly, especially if you're more limited by your within session fatigue. Whereas if you were to take a few more, more minutes, I'm not saying you're going to get 12 again because that was your failure set, but you might only lose a rep or two per set. Whereas a lot of times you'll see people go from like 12 to seven to five, and they're really, you know, skewing that rep range due to a dis or a decrease in work capacity. And Here's the thing. When we look at it, like I work with people in the real world. So I, I understand that we have research studies that say this and that, and that can't always apply to people. So not every client or person is going to want to wait three minutes or more between every set. So this is where using a combination of rest periods um, is, is useful. And how I kind of approach this is it's based on the exercise itself. So how, when I do programming, I'm always talking to someone about their preferences because you kind of alluded to this. Um, you know, it's great to have research. But we also have to have research, we have to have me-search, and we have to realize that <laughs> evidence-based practice, which is what a lot of us pride ourselves in, it's a, a triangle, essentially. So it is the experiences of the practitioner, the best of the body of literature, and then it's also the client preferences, abilities, and their goals. So we have to combine that. That is what truly evidence-based coaching is. So it's not just what PubMed says. It's not just what research says. It's not just what your experiences as a coach or clinician are. And it's not just what the client is, it's melding and molding all those things into one. So how I look at this and, and usually how I program for my own self and then for my clients is I'll use longer rest intervals when we're doing compound you know, exercises that are going to hit multiple muscle groups. And this is because generally they're going to benefit from longer rest periods as they're more demanding. You're generally using higher loads. A lot of them focus on the lengthened partial or the lengthened portion of the movement. So they're inducing more damage, more muscle damage. And so they're more taxing. So resting longer will allow us to keep our performance and our work capacity up longer. But then when it comes down to isolation movements, you know, especially when they're for smaller muscle groups, that's where I'm going to use shorter rest intervals as a likelihood of seeing a, a drastic rep drop off between sets is going to be a lot less with these movements because they're only isolating one body part. They're not as systemically taxing. They're not accumulating as much fatigue. So what I generally do is I suggest to combine the, the two strategies of using both longer rest on compounds and then you know, shorter rests on isolation movements like cable or machine work, especially if you're in a time crunch, because we have to realize the best plan on paper for hypertrophy is, is useless if someone can't actually execute upon it. So we have to always take into consideration, like I work with high level IFBB pros, but I also work with high level execs that have families that have businesses that they run. And they're, you know, it's 30 to 45 minutes that they have three to four days a week. So we have to make time effective training. So you really have to take into consideration the time constraints of the client, the abilities of the client, their recovery capacity, their training experience. You have to take into consideration their preferences. Some people like being in the gym 90 minutes and some don't. 
So these are where rest intervals are extremely important to really be able to take what we see in the research and apply it in certain contexts to maximize outcomes, but then also be able to utilize different strategies to optimize what that person has at their disposal. So another, you know, it's a little bit of a side from rest intervals, but a lot of things that I like to use are antagonist uh, paired sets. So that would be like the utilization of say a chest and back superset. So within that, we actually see that you can get as much or even greater total work done in terms of total volume and, and the maintenance of that volume by utilizing like a chest and back superset. So generally in the research, you'll see them do like a bench press to a row, but that could be any combination of a push and pull exercise where you could take one minute in between there and you can cut down on your rest intervals in, to or in totality throughout the session, but get just as many reps per set because there's this co-activation between antagonist muscle groups where it's almost like utilizing, say like your chest during a bench press or during a pressing movement is priming your back. You know, so it's, it's the synergism that you can get from utilizing. So knowing some of these strategies between rest intervals, between antagonist paired sets, between different, you know, uh, strategies, whether it be rest, uh, rest pause or any of these things, we can maximize outcomes, but still get the sufficient rest per body part. I love that. And I'm actually totally on the same page when it comes to my programming as well. And the longer rest sets for compounds and shorter for isolation work or accessory work. And I'm a huge fan of supersetting um, exactly like you, you, you mentioned, or even tri-sets when it comes to antagonist movements or just in general to, um, to optimize rest times. And I do I, I can totally relate to people as well when they're like, well, I don't want to rest for three minutes if I'm only working out for 40, 40 minutes or something like that. That feels like a waste of time to me. And I often find it difficult um, when it comes to phone use and recommendations during training for that purpose, because on the one hand, um, it pulls our focus away from what we're doing and what we want to be focusing on. But at the same time, and this might be an unpopular statement, but at the same time, having your phone with you in the gym can help you stick with that rest time, as opposed to being too bored after 20 seconds, like, oh, I'm just going to start again. <laughs> so no, absolutely. I you know, you know, what's really interesting about that is because as I've transitioned, so initially when I got into this industry, you know, 10 years ago within coaching, I had two jobs during the entire entirety of this. So a lot of times when I was training, I had to answer emails because I was either on the clock for, for my, my, my day job or just to the fact that I needed to allocate as much time towards my work as possible. And it was back then, and we're going to talk about this later, is this is actually one of the things that I've changed my mind on. Because 10 years ago, we were chasing the pump. We were chasing fatigue. We were chasing that lactate buildup and that accumulation of hydrogen ions and that feeling of like your skin bursting, thinking that that was inducing hypertrophy. And that's because at that time, there was many different mechanisms that were proposed to induce hypertrophy. But we had the three main mechanisms, which were mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. Well, now we know that it's really mechanical tension. So the tension that we we put on the fibers themselves. And the other two are kind of like backdoors that, you know, to hypertrophy that come along with mechanical tension or just byproducts. So a lot of the things that I did back then, I was utilizing shorter rest intervals. And I found that not only did my improve, did, did my performances improve my recovery between sessions, within sessions improve when I utilize longer rest breaks, but then I, I got to uh, do a two for one. So I would use my phone to do different things that I needed to do. And as long as I was able to get back into the mindset. So generally what I would do is I would only utilize. So we see this within the performance literature, even within sports is 
music can upregulate performance. And so I only use, I have certain top set songs, you know what I mean? That I only tap into that. And it's the same kind of thing. We have to realize that with all stimuli, we get habituated. So whether it's training, it's caffeine use. I think the best you know, analogy would be caffeine use. Same thing with music. So just like with caffeine, if we're constantly utilizing it, you still get benefits out of it, but you're not feeling that same um, increase in energy and increase in alertness that you would generally feel when you've been off it for a while or you've titrated your dose. So you use lower amounts, say in the beginning of your mesocycle, and then maybe at your last week of that mesocycle where you're really pushing maybe in an overreaching phase that then you utilize a larger dose, which more in line with say that three to six milligrams per kilogram, which we really see to be like the most beneficial from a performance outcomes. And the same thing with music. So generally what I'll do is, you know, I'll turn off my music and maybe I'll do an email or two, but then when I need to get back into my top sets or my actual working sets, the music's coming back on. I'm getting back locked in and I'm, I've leveraged that fact that I've had a few minutes. I've taken advantage of that. I've gotten full recovery. I've regenerated ATP. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize, you know, our training is anaerobic. So it utilizes anaerobic glycolysis. It grows through glycogen. So we're burning through glycogen, but recovery is an aerobic process. That's how our bodies work. So we need enough time in between sets to restore ATP and really regenerate our, our energy currency essentially. And so, you know, it's, it's a two for one thing. We're taking enough rest intervals will allow you to have better performance. It might let you multitask as well. Or if you're someone that you don't want to be on your phone, you want to leave it. I have clients like that as well. That's where I use these antagonist paired sets because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm allocating enough rest to the body part itself because in that interim, I'm, I'm still getting about two to three minutes rest in between sets, but it's because they're utilizing a different exercise for a different muscle group that isn't taxing the, the initial muscle group that we use on exercise one. So say we have a one, a, a one B pairing, and it is a incline, um, dumbbell press to a unilateral, uh, lat pull down. And so when, you know, they go from the incline dumbbell press, they finish their sets, say it's 30 or 45 seconds. They walk over, they take about a minute rest. They go into their unilateral lat pull down. And they finish, you know, think about it, it's unilateral. So now it's taking longer. So I've, I've increased that work, the work time and also that recovery. By the time they walk back over, get a drink and go into their next incline dumbbell set, it's been three minutes. So they've fully recovered from a chest perspective, from a localized fatigue. They've dissipated that peripheral fatigue. And what we have to realize is just like I spoke about acute and chronic fatigue, that's on a long-term spectrum, but we also have peripheral and central fatigue. And what happens, peripheral fatigue is at the local level. So we can kind of like... um other people will refer to that as local fatigue. And that's within the muscle itself. And it takes a few minutes to dissipate that. But if we're to utilize very short rest sets, we actually see this in the literature. If you are to utilize very short rest intervals, you're increasing peripheral fatigue and you can actually induce higher levels of central fatigue because of the accumulation and the lack of dissipation of that peripheral fatigue. So there's all these downstream effects that could come from under utilizing your rest intervals. I love uh, that explanation there. I don't think a lot of people are aware of it. And I also like how you um, said or shared how you use music to to help stimulate the right um, nervous system. And, and there is yeah. so much uh, research as well showing that we can actually help induce recovery so much quicker with not just breath work, for example, after training, um, but also with calm music and whatever. Like, and in the end, we're 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 basically like like a dog that can easily be trained to something like that dog with the bell you know where mm -hmm. that starts <laughs> saliving um yeah starts, exactly or on the flip side then also um us for example with a high 
intensity music and you suddenly get into the swing of your sets again so really cool um explanation and yeah with your programming so what is your um thought often when it comes to minimum amount of rest days or do you program deloads specifically for your clients or are you more someone who's like auto-regulating um deloads absolutely so we'll work back we'll do rest days and then we can go into deloads so Rest days, we got it. I, I find there to be an essential part of training. They are part of my periodization program and the intra mesocycle um, or intra microcycle, you know, periodization that I'm utilizing. So, rest days are the main recovery modality that I'm using within the microcycle or within the training week itself. And then deloads would be, would be my main recovery strategy within the mesocycle, within the whole training cycle as a whole. So from a rest day perspective, this is a great way to manage fatigue and improve recovery throughout the course of the microcycle or the week of training. And what I really, I really try to get across because I know that this is always an issue with people. It's really hard for them to take rest days. And I understand that I work with a ton of type A individuals that they really struggle with the, the concept of rest days, doing them good. But really when it comes down to it, rest days provide us with both a physical and a mental reset throughout the course of the training week so that we can go into the next week of training in a position where we can train hard again and adapt as we've recovered from our previous training sessions. So I always try to get across the clientele that whether it be, so I'll give you my experience because I work with such like a vast array of clientele that they're all over the board. So I never have like, I can never give you a set and forget protocol. I actually don't utilize the, the word protocol because I believe in principles. I apply principles and it's based on the individual that I'm working with, but I have certain individuals that are on a minimum effective dose protocol which, or, or program essentially. And what that would be is three days per week. We're doing full body three days per week. So they're resting four days per week. And that's based on the, the, current phase of their life that they're in. It's really based on their lifestyle. So right now I have a couple of clients that are utilizing just three day a week per, per week training. And it's because they've, they're moving cross country or they've just had a child. So they're really lacking sleep or huge events within their life, you know, stressful events that are really taking the emphasis or they're taking the priority over training. But generally the average client that I work with is going to train four to five times per week. So they're going to get two to three days or through two to three rest days per week. But then I also have some of these outlier clients that are professional athletes that are IFBB pros that really, in order to be able to effectively distribute the volume that we're utilizing, I need to use a higher training frequency. So I may have to use six days per week with certain of these individuals because of their training advancement, because of their goals, because of their recovery thresholds. And really when it comes down to it, I kind of see training frequency or the amount of times that we train a body part per week or that we train per week in general as a vehicle for distributing volume. And usually what I like to do is have clients at least train body parts twice per week, just to have, be able to sufficiently uh, distribute their volume throughout the course of the week. However, with certain individuals, it's me three times per week. But generally what I'm looking at is between three to six training days per week with clients. So we look at that and that's between four to one day of rest days per week based on that person's experience, their preferences. There are certain clients, they don't want to take more than one rest day per week. They start getting itchy and they're going to go to the gym and they're not going to uh, adhere to the program in and of itself. So really when it comes down to that, that's where I really have to meet in the middle between what's optimal for the goals that they're going for. And then what's also in alignment and what's practical for their lifestyle, for their preferences, for their mindset. And then when it comes to deloading, you know, when we really look at the, the emphasis or the reason that we deload, it's essentially just a planned reduction in training aimed at lowering systemic fatigue. And so this can be done through a multitude of fashion. So I'll tell you how I do this, but this can be done through a variety. So we could look at lowering total, it's essentially lowering total workload. So we can do that in terms of training volume, relative intensity, or essentially proximity to failure or frequency. So what I, what I generally like to do, and it's going to range on the client. So I have certain clients I've been working with three, four years, 
and their deloads are very specific to them because I've learned that over time. But generally, I'm going to like to pull on all three levers, to be honest with you. So what I like to do is lower training volume a little bit, lower relative intensity. So if they were training zero reps in reserve, we're going to go back to three to four reps in reserve. They might utilize the same loads, but now say they were utilizing 100 you know, pound dumbbells on incline uh, for a set of 10. That was their zero reps in reserve. Now they're going to do six. So now I've not only influenced their relative intensity or their proximity to failure. So they're not going as close to failure and not inducing as much fatigue as a result of staying further away from failure. But also I've lowered their volume because essentially I've lowered the reps per set. And then usually I would like to increase their amount of days off. So say a client is working out six days per week. I may just pull them back to five days per week within this, the status or within the context of a deload, because I'm really trying to uh, help them dissipate both physical and mental fatigue, improve recovery, and then also improve their motivation. Cause that's another reason as to why, you know, a lot of people, you know, there's multiple reasons as to why someone would deload, but we generally see there's physical, physiological, psychological, and mental, you know, rationale behind deloading. So really this could be done for a multitude of reasons. And I personally do it in an auto-regulated fashion. So I never preset my, my mesocycles, to be honest with you. I've always taken a reactive and, and I'll say this from context here. I do this now, but I learned through other mesocycle constructions <laughs> years ago. So initially I used to run specific paradigms. So, you know, at one time, in, you know, I was very highly influenced by certain individuals within our industry you know, I coached under them and things of that sort. So, you know, maybe at one point in my career, it was a four to one paradigm, but then I realized that didn't fit everyone. Some people, you know, they were trashed at week three. And then some people, they literally felt like fresh as a daisy at week four, despite training zero reps in reserve. And then I was forcing them to deload just based off this, you know, evidence-based structure that we had. And so now I take a completely reactive, you know, deload uh, type of scenario, which goes off based off their biofeedback and there's certain parameters I'm looking for. So the first thing that I'm looking for to decide whether it's necessary or beneficial for a client to deload and whether I should implement one is when I start seeing performance regressing. And this can't just be a one-time thing. We have to realize that sometimes we're going to have a bad night of sleep. You know, if I work with many parents, they're up all night with their kids, throwing up whatever it may be, or just the child can sleep. So the, the parents very well can sleep. And so if you have one bad day, you have to realize that that's natural. We're not always going to have our best performances week on and week off, especially because towards the end of, the, of a mesocycle, just like I've talked about you know, fitness is increasing throughout the course of a mesocycle. So is fatigue. So sometimes that fatigue will mask your fitness and you won't always have, it's not like every week, especially when your advance is a PR week. So we have to realize that it needs to be consistent performance regressions, consistent performance drop-offs that we're seeing within, you know, if you have multiple sessions for the same muscle group and you're seeing, you're starting to lose reps on your main, you know, key indicate, like what I would call your key indicating lifts. So that really the lifts that we're focusing on progressing throughout the course of a mesocycle, that's an indication that you've really amounted a ton of fatigue. And then there's other indications from a physical perspective, you know, that they're losing or that they're um, having a, an accumulation of systemic fatigue. So that could be when my clients are losing pumps, their sleep quality is becoming disrupted. They're losing motivation in the dim. So that's a good indication from a physiological perspective. Hey, this client could really, you know, benefit from a deload, which would generally be a week long period of lower training intensity, volume, and frequency. But also I, a big thing within coaching, a lot of times when I hear people speak about deloads, they're only looking at the physiological perspective. So only the physical indications as to why someone needs a deload. What we have to realize is we cannot separate psychology from physiology. And all of us coaches know that because the body follows the brain. So if you're not in a good mental state, it is going to induce 
both mental fatigue, which is going to lead to systemic fatigue. And so within that, another reason why I would utilize a deload is if a client's going through a high stress period, you know, these are, this could include family emergencies, work deadlines, um, you know, exam weeks, you know, breakups, things like that. So, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I just had a client that, you know, I have a good relationship with, and she let me know that she's going to, she just filed for divorce. So this is a really, you know, key point in her life. You know, this is a really um, emotionally you know, traumatic experience she's going through. And so I said, listen, let's go into a deload. Let's, let's pull off. I just want to lower your systemic stress. And she's the type of person that she's a former competitor. So she's very driven, very type A, never wants to take time off. And the issue here is that she looks at this gym as an outlet, which is great. It's a phenomenal thing. But right now her stress load is so high that training, she's going to bury herself. And I know her personality. It's just not conducive. I need you to go into the gym. Like I was on a console call with her and I said, listen, I want you to go in the gym, just get a pump, get in, get out, break a small sweat, but I want nothing to failure. I don't want you like exercising your demons in the gym. Like utilize that, that extra energy that you have that you're not utilizing in your training and utilize it towards some meditative practices, towards mm -hmm. counseling, towards other things. And that's a big thing why I like to decrease frequency within the context of a deload because I want to encourage my clients, hey, listen, go in the sauna, go get, you know, cryotherapy, whatever you want, like things that are going to relax you, you know, time out in nature, go for walks out in nature, get that green uh, house effect where we see cortisol gets lowered from being out in green, you know, areas. And so there's a lot of other things besides the gym that you could utilize throughout your deload week to really improve not only your recovery, but your quality of life. And then from there, also a, a couple other, you know, mental considerations, I guess, for deloads, which would, would be if someone's feeling mentally or physically burnt out, if they're ill or they have an injury, or if they have a vacation or holiday, that's a big one that I leverage. So someone, someone's, you know, planning a vacation and, you know, they were starting to show signs of fatigue a week or two earlier, and I'm, I'm going to push them through that. And I make sure that they deload during vacation. Cause one of the biggest things I see with clients is a lot of them, they get so anxious about going away during times and it being during like the last week of their mesocycle, like they want to hit top tier performances, but that's just not aligned with where they're at. You know, the, the context of the vacation, what their family's going to be doing. So they don't want to be the person breaking up the, the, um, the holiday or the itinerary because they have to go train, you know, zero reps in reserve and bury themselves. And then they're exhausted the rest of the day. So there's a lot of considerations that we need to make in order to, you know, ensure that we have great recovery capacity, but we're also aligning this with our lifestyle. That's really why I take that reactive approach. Totally. I think um, that is a great reason why a pre-planned uh, or generic deload approach is not the best approach specifically for that reason. We don't know exactly that on week eight, every single person that we deal with um needs uh wants to go on vacation or we don't know that that's exactly going to be the week where they have a lot more mental stress and that's why i also when people ask um how do you approach deloads like how how much should i lower my rpe or uh, rar or whatever it might be um and i think the method also here with uh it really varying from time from person to person is the best approach because for someone like your client there the best advice really is Hey, just go and do a yoga, Pilates, whatever class instead, and maybe just stay completely out of the gym as hard as it might sound. And and for that mental reset too, because some people, not everyone loves training, training as much as we do. So, you know, for them every now and then it might be like, oh, I just really didn't feel like going to the gym. So, okay, that's cool. Do a spin class, whatever. It's, you know, it's just something that you feel like doing. I think for, for me, the biggest criteria when I want to assess is someone ready to get back into full training mode after deload is 
are you like you should be itching to get back into the gym you should be like super excited to lift heavy again it shouldn't be like oh okay just another week you should be like pumped <laughs> so Absolutely. i think that's a that's a, a good um and, and for that reason sometimes i also extend uh deloads to 10 days 14 days whatever it might be it's really person dependent but yeah some really good points there um and you touched earlier you mentioned earlier that your family or your dad um does strength training as well um potentially now uh, to help with his diabetes did i get that correct no no so my pt they were very into strength training my father honestly uh he passed away a few years ago from the diabetes related complications but honestly his passing and, and all the things that i saw with him within him really has inspired me or really pushed me forward in my career because uh, when I first started coaching, he was very into, you know, he was very deep into his disease state. And so that's really what's caused me to have an interest because I come from a bodybuilding background. So I competed 15 times back in the day. So I was very into it. And at that point in my, my career personally, as well as my own, I guess, physique pursuits, it was all about body composition and yeah. where I'm at in my career now is completely different. Yes. I'm trying to bo optimize body composition, but I'm trying to do it. I always, this is one of my catchphrases within my, my coaching business is a healthy body is a responsive body. And what I mean by that is when you optimize your health, your internal health, your mental health in conjunction with things that help improve your body composition, your body's more responsive to the stimuli you provide it with. And so within that, I have much more of a health centric coaching model than I did 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, it was all about aesthetics. Whereas now I'm more into ensuring that someone is insulin sensitive, their blood work looks immaculate, that we're improving multiple parameters. So I'm not only looking at their training performance and their body composition metrics, whether that be their scale weight or their visual photos, but I'm also looking at health markers like their blood glucose, their, their fasting blood glucose, their postprandial blood glucose, their blood pressure, their resting heart rate, and all these other autonomic nervous system uh, metrics. Oh, okay. Awesome. Sorry, I got that wrong, but I would love no for you to to go a little bit into why um, strength training is so beneficial to improve insulin sensitivity or um, just other um, recommendations to improve insulin sensitivity as well. Absolutely. So, you know, when we look at strength training, there's, there's so many benefits that it provides us with from, you know, obviously the body composition, the energy expenditure, the metabolism benefits, but a lot of times we kind of overlook some of the metabolic health benefits that it provides us with. And really when we look at resistance training exercise, it improves insulin sensitivity through a variety of mechanisms. So the first thing it does is it increases glucose or, you know, muscle glucose uptake during muscular contractions. And that's via a pathway that's insulin independent, which is called GLUT4 translocation. It also, if we think about what we're doing when we're, we're lifting weights, it's increasing blood flow, which is going to increase nutrient delivery, and it's going to improve nutrient partitioning. So more nutrients are going to be, you know, essentially what happens when we resistance train is our muscles are more receptive and more sensitive to both amino acids and to glucose. So to both, you know, protein and carbohydrates. And we see from resistance training in the literature that it increases skeletal muscle uh, insulin sensitivity, you know, after exercise for up to 48 hours. And so that happens even if someone's insulin resistant. So they've done like randomized control trials with type 2 diabetics, as well as those that are pre-diabetic, meaning they have insulin resistance. And they've shown that it normalizes their blood glucose levels for up to 24 to 48 hours after those resistance training sessions. Now, mind you, if you are someone that's pre-diabetic, that means you generally have a blood sugar between 100 milligrams per deciliter and 126 milligrams per deciliter. This is like US metrics, but... um. If you're diabetic, you're type two, you're over that 126 milligrams per deciliter, which, you know, really when we look at the literature, 
what we want to be is between say 75 and 85. And we see that for every milligram per deciliter over 85 milligrams per deciliter, there is a likelihood of a 6% increased likelihood for type two diabetes in the next 10 years. So for instance, if you have a 95 milligram per deciliter in the States or actually most blood work, um, the, the range is between 65 and 99. So if you had a 95 milligram per deciliter blood sugar on your lab work, for instance, on your CMP and your CBC, your doctor would say, oh, you're you're within the normal range. But re realize that what is the normal range based on? It's based off of population data. And who are the majority of people that are sampled or who are the majority of people that go to get blood work? It's those that have illness and that are sick. And so within that, you know, it's kind of skewed some of our lab ranges. So we have to, we want to shoot for what's optimal, but we see that if you had a 95 milligram per deciliter blood sugar on your blood work repetitively, that would lead you to a a likelihood of a 60% increased risk for prediabetes in the next 10 years. And so that's why we really want to optimize these things. And one way to do so is res resistance training, because we even see that exercise in of itself rivals other type two diabetic medications. So they've done lifestyle intervention studies where they've looked at diet and exercise combined versus the number one prescribed uh, type two diabetic medication. So this was actually done with walks and with diet, but a very similar, um, you know, type of mechanism that, that comes from the increase in glucose uh, uptake and insulin sensitivity. So they looked at 150 minutes per week of brisk walking and a diet intervention that lowered body weight by 7% versus a metformin group, which is the number one prescribed type two diabetic medication. They used a very large dose. And what they found was the lifestyle intervention, which was the brisk walking in conjunction with a improvement in diet quality and caloric restriction led to twice the um, lowered the likelihood of diabetes by two times the amount that the metformin group did. And metformin is an incredibly efficacious medication. So we have to realize that exercise is medicine. And, and I always say resistant training, I, I, I kind of say this to my clients a lot of times when I'm trying to get past the fact that it's not just about aesthetics. Hypertrophy training is a vehicle for bettering your health. And that, that you know, really does uh, go downstream to you know, insulin sensitivity, because within that resistant training increases the oxidation of both glucose and fatty acids. So what that allows for is better metabolic flexibility, which is our ability to utilize different substrates at the right time. So during low intensity activities, we should be relying off fats. That is through, you know, that we should be oxidizing fatty acids, but during anaerobic activities or higher intensity activities like resistant training, we should be burning through muscle glycogen. And so when we look at resistant training in and of itself, like if I was to give you like the big pitch on why resistant training is essential for blood glucose uh, regulation and for insulin sensitivity, it's because it increases both nutrient partitioning and insulin sensitivity through both insulin independent and insulin dependent actions. So the first thing it does is it upregulates glucose, uh, GLUT4 translocation. And that's done both through training and physical activity. So when we've trained, we essentially have primed our muscles to uptake glucose and convert into stored glycogen. Because what we've done during that training session is we've depleted glycogen stores. So now we've essentially muscles like a glucose sink. And so the more muscle we have, the more glucose we can utilize. And up to 80% of glucose disposal happens in muscle tissue. So when we resist and train, we're essentially burning through that. We're making our sink larger and we're essentially utilizing exercise of the drain. So our, as our uh, sink fills up with, with carbohydrates, we're able to exercise it off essentially and burn those, those um, substrates off. But when we look at how it works from a mechanistic perspective, GLU4 transporters are usually insulin dependent, meaning that they translocate to the cell when insulin is present. So when our pancreas releases insulin after we've ingested carbohydrates, that's generally when GLU4 comes in and it allows for glucose uptake into the cell. However, when we train, especially when we go through the active muscular contractions, it 
upregulates GLUT4 translocation independent of insulin. So we no longer need insulin to get glucose into the cell. So we can just pull glucose without that need for insulin into the cell, which allows our glucose or our insulin needs to be lessened. So now our pancreas doesn't have to secrete as much insulin. And so we're able to uptake glucose without as much insulin, which is why it's so effective for diabetics, but also it improves insulin action. So it has a two-pronged approach. So we're getting the benefits of insulin independent glucose uptake and insulin sensitivity benefits from that, but we're also getting better insulin action, meaning our insulin is actually working better at the muscle cell site. So resistance training is one of the most efficacious ways to improve blood glucose management and insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So there's so there's so many multi-pronged benefits to resistance training in terms of not only our body composition, but our metabolic health. And I always try to like link those together because we can kind of get like uh, best bang for your buck by building muscle and moving that muscle because muscle is essentially that storage site for glucose. But that movement, like I said, it acts, it acts as that drain. So it's allowing us to essentially enjoy more carbohydrates. You know, one of the best benefits of building muscle training and being active is you get to eat more and we all love to eat. <laughs> Thank you so much for that super detailed explanation, but also for making it so understandable with that sync metaphor and um, super cool. I like that you also mentioned walks though, because of course not everyone wants to dive right into resistance training, or sometimes we think, is it even worth going for a walk? And I myself, like I love going for walks. I have been aiming for 10,000 steps or whatever a day um, for the last four or five years. And it's been honestly, not just, um, of course, beneficial for my health, but also mental health. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's not even a point that we have touched on um, so far in detail when it comes to strength training, but also just um, low intensity movement. Um, but shifting gears a little bit, I'm, I'm curious is if over the years, you mentioned you have been in this industry for a long amount of time, if over the years, there have been many things or a few things that you have perhaps changed your mind on. You already alluded to some of the changes in, in terms of training, um, maybe because new research came out or maybe um, simply because the research amounted to a point where you were like, okay, I need to change my mind now. <laughs> Absolutely. So I knew you were going to ask me this and I really had to think back to, because I, I've been, I've been very fortunate to be honest with you. I've been coaching a long time and I've also surrounded myself with like-minded individuals. And if I didn't understand or know something, I have someone within my circle to, to reference to, or to reach out to So for instance, two of my greatest mentors, one, one of them is world renowned within nutrition. So his name's Alan Aragon. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Alan Aragon research review. He's a close personal friend of mine, and he's been mentoring me since 2006. So I've been very fortunate that he was one of the initial individuals. So he never, he never directly told me any answers, but what he did was he taught me how to think for myself. And what he meant by that, or what I mean by that is he really taught me how to dig into studies. So where a lot of the people, they'll see a study come out and they only look at the title and the abstract. He taught me first and foremost, we're going to the methods section. We're seeing what they're putting their interventions in. We're looking at if there's ecological validity, meaning if it's externally valid, if what, what are the subjects, what did they do? What was the intervention? What did they utilize? Is it, you know, an in vitro study, an in vivo study? Like, how does this apply to who you're working with, Brandon? He would always tell me that. And so he really taught me how to be a critical thinker. So there's for a long time in this industry, I've not went to others to learn. What I do is I'll, I'll break down the research and then see if it, it really applies to who I work with or to myself. And then I'll put it into practice before I really um, make a decision on something. I'm never one. I'll tell you, I'm a late adopter to a lot of things because I need a good amount of uh, a mounting body of evidence to really change my mind on something. So I, I wanted to think back to what did I think at the beginning of my coaching? So we're going to go 10 years back. We're going to go to Brandon in you know, 2012. 
2013, when I first started coaching and the biggest things that I've probably changed my mind about, and it's really transitioned throughout the years. So I always say coaching is an evolution. We should constantly be not changing our thoughts, but we should be constantly open to realizing that research does not prove anything. It, it often just, you know, sheds light on things we may have thought were correct and disproves it essentially. And so within that, a lot of the things that I thought were really around some of the mechanistic tyings. So initially a good example of this is meal frequency. So when I started training or even 10 years ago, I was under the impression, this was something that was promoted by coaches, by bodybuilders, by everyone you could think of um, that you had to eat six to seven meals a day. to not only optimize muscle growth, but also to maximize your metabolism. And that's really before what's, what's interesting is the first person that I saw actually do a study on this. And he's become a friend of mine now is Dr. Bill Campbell. And so he did a study, I think in 2013, where he did a meta, he was part of a meta-analysis on meal frequency. And they looked at thermic effective feeding everywhere from like two to three meals a day, all the way to like 12 feedings a day. And there was no difference because it's about total calorie intake. And then also from muscle protein synthesis perspective, we really see in the literature that you can optimize muscle protein synthesis outcomes between three to five meals per day. And it's going to be, we actually have research that shows three meals is more effective than six meals per day. And this was in an overfeed or in a bulking study done on um, Japanese um, weightlifters. And so really when it comes down to it, it really has allowed me to shift my, my paradigm because, you know, if you had come to me 10 years ago as a client, everyone had to eat six meals a day, but now I have clients that utilize eat three meals a day. Some eat four, some eat five, some eat six based on their preference, based on their lifestyle and what's convenient for them. And so, and this is something that I've taken myself in my bodybuilding competitive days. I ate six meals a day. Now I'm so busy with business and other things. I, I prefer four meals a day, but I'm still maximally stimulating muscle protein synthesis every three to four hours while I'm awake. And I'm getting, you know, a bolus around my training. So I'm making sure that within that peri-workout window, I have sufficient amino acid availability before and after to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Another huge thing that I changed my mind on, and this wasn't until maybe like 2015, 2016, we started actually seeing research on this was the efficacy of high reps versus low reps. So I'm sure you remember at one point there was this repetition continuum. And what that means is we had the strength reps, which were one to five, and we had the hypertrophy continuum. This was to maximize hypertrophy. It was eight to 12 reps. And then anything 15 and above was you know, proposed to only elicit muscular endurance adaptations. And so I remember being like avoiding 15 plus reps, like the plague, because I didn't think that was going to build muscle when I was a bodybuilder at the time. And so now, you know, when we really look at both the randomized controls trials and then the meta analytic data, we have multiple studies that look at high load versus low load. So essentially um, high reps versus low reps, and they find equivalent outcomes as long as they're both taken to the same proximity to failure. So we actually see in most literature now that between sets of six to 30 reps, you can get out equivalent hypertrophy outcomes. Now there are some caveats to that. So we have to realize if you're utilizing all your, your sets in the 30 repetition range, it's going to be harder to get to that same point of fatigue. So we want to be within like two to three reps of failure, but there's so much peripheral fatigue and so much metabolic accumulation, metabolite accumulation throughout those sets that a lot of people, they fall short. So they don't actually gauge, you know, two to three reps in reserve or even two failure in that 30 rep set. So still to this day, I will recommend most sets between eight and 15 reps, but it's nice to know that if you have an injury, like right now I'm, I'm dealing with some, some elbow issues. And so I'm utilizing blood flow restriction. I'm utilizing that typical, um, you know, approach that we see in the literature, which is a buy-in set of 30 reps, which it's you're burning. And then it's three sets of 15 with 30 seconds in between. So I'm utilizing shorter rest intervals, but really what I'm trying to do is I'm including, you know, my limbs, I'm including my arms and I'm getting that metabolite accumulation, which is allowing me to get with lighter 
loads, it's allowing me to get more um, fiber type recruitment. So I'm still getting those high threshold motor units that would usually take much higher loads, much higher uh, weights to get, but I'm getting them with lower loads. And so there's so many, you know, what's great about hypertrophy training is it's a forgiving stimulus. So there's so many roads that lead to gains. And so this is something that I've changed my mind on. And uh, another thing, I kind of mentioned this previously, but I used to be big into short rest intervals. And that was something I changed my mind on, uh, you know, like 2015, 2016, Brad Schoenfeld came out with that three, three minutes versus one minute study. There's another meta-analysis uh, by Gurdjick that looked at this, I believe in 2020, that saw that um, when they looked at two minutes or more versus one minute or less, two minutes or more in all of the studies that they had to that time were superior for hypertrophy outcomes. So these are all different things within, you know, my programming, within my approach to my own training that has transitioned and changed over the years. And I really think when it comes down to it, as a coach, I think we need to be willing to change our minds based off of a large amount of emerging evidence. And what I mean by that is don't just run with the latest study that you see posted on Instagram or you see, you know, a, a Twitter post about. You have to really look at the larger body of evidence. Does this align? Does this new study align with what we're really seeing within the literature? I'll give you another example of something I've changed my mind about, which has really been strongly reinforced within the last few years is the the topic of concurrent training. So concurrent training is the, the combination of utilizing both strength training or resistance training with aerobic training. Now we used to believe in this interference effect. So if you look at any of the data before 2017, we always saw this interference effect and it was all based on molecular mechanisms. So Resistant training works off mTOR, you know, um, endurance training amplifies AMPK. And so these are, you know, essentially competing molecular pathways. Well, now we see that in every meta-analysis that has been done since like 2019, we don't see um, concurrent training. So utilizing both resistance and aerobic training to impair hypertrophy outcomes or strength outcomes. But what it does impair is peak power. So if you're a weightlifter, if you're a performance athlete, it could hinder some of your gains from those training, but it's not as long as calories are sufficient. You're, you're making sure that you're not doing, you know, a huge, you know, zone two cardio session immediately after your training session, as long as you're spacing those things out and you're not doing a, a ton of high intensity training, that's going to obviously induce more fatigue and take away from, you know, there's a recovery cost to say high intensity interval training. It's not going to hinder your hypertrophy outcomes. And what's really good about that is Nowadays, I, I train people in more of, I don't want to say a hybrid athlete type of modality, but I really like to incorporate both resistance training, aerobic training, and then steps as well. So we have physical activity, and that's more of a multimodal uh, approach towards optimizing our outcomes. But if I go 10 years ago, I wasn't doing cardio with anyone because we all were so scared. Like it was, we were the, the no cardio crew because we were scared that that was going to hinder our gains. Where now we actually see in some data that it actually could increase. We, we know that aerobic training increases mitochondrial density and capacity. It could actually enhance your gains, especially when you're a newer trainee. And if aerobic fitness is your limiter within your recovery capacity. Really great three points. I like it. I like that you um, mentioned the energy factor uh, as well with the last point in the sense of there is no harm in adding cardio as long as energy is equated for because I just recently read um, a research review. I don't um, remember what year it was from, um, but it basically stated that overtraining is incredibly rare. Most individuals that feel overtrained or that claim to be overtrained, et cetera, it's really a matter of underfueling. And you also touched on that earlier with, with reds, with um, energy, uh, just 
in a, a not not consuming enough energy across the board um so yeah amazing topics thank you so much for all your your knowledge and for sharing your philosophy with us um i know that there is going to be a lot of valuable takeaways for the listeners i would love for you to plug your um, website or your instagram so people can go and follow your amazing content Absolutely. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Guys, if you have any interest in following me, getting any more information from me, my Instagram is uh, BrandonDeCruz underscore. My email is BDeCruzFitness at gmail.com. And as Lisa can allude to, I answer, you know, I'm very quick with responding. So if you guys ever have questions, inquiries or anything of that, feel free to reach out to me. And then also I have a podcast myself. It's called the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast. And you can find that anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, things of that sort. So I would love, and if you're a listener of Lisa, I would love for you to come and listen to mine as well. Amazing. Yes, people go and follow Brandon and so much valuable information. Thank you again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode on social. Very much appreciated. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nutrition Coaching and Life or head to our website, www.nutritioncoachingandlife.com, where we provide more valuable content. Have a wonderful day. Now go out and work on your best self.